Welcome to Addiction Nonfiction, hosted by family recovery advocate and writer Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from people who have been affected by or active in addiction. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of various guests. The goal is to take a deep look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, family dysfunction, codependency, and other various types of madness, the real-life stuff we all experience. You can reach Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I am excited to have my guest this week because I have personally learned so much from her after reading her book that is not yet released, Saving Eric. I have invited Mary Burns on to share with us her family's story. Mary's a mother of three. She is a teacher, and she's involved in education advocacy. Mary's son, unfortunately, lost his battle with addiction on February 17th, 2012, but she is kind and courageous enough to share her experience and what she has learned and to offer support and encouragement to other families with us. Since her son's death, she's become involved with a local advocacy group coordinated by the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, in which she was honored as an advocacy leader in 2017. She has also helped spearhead a walk called Changing the Face of Addiction to help change the stigma of addiction, something very near and dear to my heart, upsetting stigma. In 2018, close to $58,000 was raised. The money raised is used by a local Sussex County agency that helps those without resources in need of addiction treatment services. Mary has brought her advocacy to her local state senator and addressed the New Jersey Senate Budget Appropriations Committee about the need for change to the addiction treatment protocol. And I couldn't agree more. Um, Mary is here to tell us how the hope she clung to when it came to her son and his battle has transformed to honor as she raises awareness and carries her son Eric's legacy with dignity. She speaks to a pain we all fear and understands sorrow that only those who have endured such loss can understand. Welcome, Mary, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Um, um, Let's just get started. Um, first of all, there is a different dynamic with your story and the fact that your son was adopted. So if you could tell us a little bit about your story and kind of, in a nutshell, give us the summary of your book. Uh, well, basically, uh, my son, when he was uh, about seven and a half years old, just started having these uh, screaming fits. Um, I don't know why. Um, I thought it had something to do with his adoption. Uh, he always... Um, told me that it didn't, although towards the end of his life, he started to think that maybe that was part of his issue. Um, and then these uh, screaming episodes uh, ended up becoming uh, rages when he became a teenager. And he got to be, you know, sometimes scary, um, uh, maybe sometimes threatening. Uh, finally, he was um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder and uh, treated for that. Eventually, after, you know, as we got through high school, uh, things seemed a little bit better. But, um, and then he started to use drugs. Um, and essentially what we found out at the end is that he started to use the drugs because they made him feel better. Um, he had a lot of uh, self-hatred and self-loathing um, and the drugs made him feel better. Um, and it was something that 
was really hard for me to see because he seemed like he was the kid that had everything. He was talented in school. Up until high school, he was a straight A student. He was gifted and talented program. Uh, he was always a, a sports, uh, he was good in all sports. He was an all-star all throughout his whole life in baseball. So uh, it was something that I didn't recognize. And I don't think he gave me very many signs that he was feeling that way, except for these uh, screaming fits. But he was always had a lot of friends, um, so it was it was difficult. But in the end, he ends up um, trying to make himself feel better by using drugs, or I should say, they made him feel better. You know, kids do experiment with marijuana and drinking alcohol, and uh, when he started doing that, he felt, as he put it, on top of the world. And unfortunately, it led to his addiction. So, and then his death. So, I I read your book, and one thing that really struck me is that you went above and beyond in every way you could think of and any type of guidance you could find to help him and try to improve life. I tried. <laughs> but, um, and sometimes I, I actually, as I said in the book, I knew he was listening and other times I really wasn't sure. But I did. Uh, even though he was very difficult at times, there were times where in between those difficult times, he was a great kid and we would sit down and have conversations and I would be able to communicate with him. But it just, there was something there uh, inside of him that he had real difficulty with. And um, unfortunately, I, I guess you could say took it out on himself because um, like I said, he became addicted. But yeah, I did try. I tried everything. Uh, before he became addicted, I tried everything. I went to doctors. I brought him to doctors, brought him to psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, after he became addicted, you know, we put him into treatment. We had him stay at a halfway house for a while. And then finally, when we weren't going to get the kind of treatment that I felt he needed via our insurance company, I, um, we, we paid for nine months of inpatient treatment because um, he was important to me and I wanted him well. That's all. Let me ask you, let me back up just a little bit and ask, where was he adopted locally? No, he was born in South Korea. So he was, uh, you know, Korean. Uh, so he did not look like myself or my husband. Um, that, in the end, did uh, was a factor for him, which he never really expressed until he was in treatment at the very end of his life, where he started to really come to terms with things and really start to understand himself. But yeah, so he was um, Asian, and so was his older sister. And then I have a biological child um, as well. So, yeah. what do you, did you know if there was any type of addiction history in his biological family? Um, I did not know, but we did inquire. Uh, Eric at one point asked me to check with the adoption agency, and I thought maybe his mother, or he was born addicted to drugs. His mother may have been a drug addict. Uh, they told me she was not. Um, but then the first time I inquired, they also told me that in th terms of like mental illness or addiction, they probably wouldn't admit it if you would ask them. Because at one point I asked them if they would actually find her, if they could find her, because I needed some answers to some questions. But they told me even if they did find her, she probably wouldn't admit to any type of mental illness or addiction. Yeah, so that makes sense. That's yeah. I mean, because the questions always come into play, you know, nature versus, versus nurture. It, what causes it? What leads to it? What stops it? And, you know, you take somebody from a environment and you give them a, you know, a better loving life 
and addiction still happens. I know of other couples who have battled addiction and adopted children, and they will talk of homeschooling and putting them in private school and taking them on vacations and, and loving, loving, loving these kids, and yet still they fall prey to addiction. Yeah. Uh, it was something inside of Eric. You know, I mean, he, they said he was bipolar for a while, then they were treating him for depression. You know, I honestly not sure what he was anymore in terms of that, but he's definitely had this, this feeling of um, just self-loathing and self-hatred inside of him. But you couldn't, you wouldn't know that if you met him because he was happy. He made other people laugh. People told me, you know, that at his funeral, they never could have made it through their recoveries without him. He was just seemingly on the outside, happy-go-lucky, but on the inside, he was very broken. Um, I refer to it as the Robin Williams syndrome. Robin Williams was a great comedian. He made millions of people laugh, and yet he was broken on the inside, and he ended up taking his own life. So it's the same type of thing with Eric. He was happy-go-lucky. People um, just, you know, adored him. Uh, and yet he was, he couldn't, he couldn't see that. It was like as if there were blinders put in front of him. You know, he saw it, but he couldn't absorb it. He just, everything that was good in his life bounced off of him. Anything negative in his life, he absorbed, it seemed. Yeah, and, when, uh, that's I don't know why. Mind is so powerful. When you truly internally have that belief or that self-loathing, it really doesn't matter what anyone says to you. That is the voice you're hearing. Exactly. Exactly. And he even, he said that to me. And I know in one part of my book, we, we talked about that where he says, it doesn't matter what you tell me, mom. I, that's not what my brain says. That's not what my brain tells me. So um, it's difficult to bring somebody out of that. And I thought we did at the end. He was just truly an amazing, amazing at the end of his life. And I still can't figure out what happened to make him, to think that he, you know, I still can't even imagine what made him take those drugs the last time that killed him because he was just doing so wonderful, but, at least wow. until. Right. But I guess it just, like you just said, it never really goes away. No. What can you tell me about your bond with him, given the fact that he was adopted? Was it similar to the bond of a child you carry, or was it different? You know, I, I have a, a biological child and two adopted children, and I honestly um, don't think there was any type of difference. To me, they were just my children. It didn't matter how they joined my family. They were my kids, and um, I, I don't think I – I didn't feel any difference. I don't think I treated them any differently. They were just, they were my children. That was it. So I don't think there's any difference. Right. I think that's interesting that you have a biological as well so that you would know the difference. Some, some yeah. just have the adopted kids. So you've experienced both and still know the bond is there. Mm-hmm. What yes. um, was the, was the Asian sister, was she his biological sister or was she adopted from another family? She was adopted from another family. And what was the impact on his sister and brother when he went through his struggles? Well, his sister, thankfully, was at college. So she really did not live through the worst of it, which I'm grateful for. Um, his brother, uh, you know, my son, Matthew, he's, he's amazing. He came through it unscathed. Um, he's a strong kid. Uh, to this day, he doesn't ever have a beer. He won't even try any kind of drug. He just refuses because he saw what happened with his brother. Um, so he, he unfortunately was witness to all of it, but he, um, like I said, he's a really strong kid. And he, he came through okay. So um, no issues with him. And uh, my daughter, you know, was away. So that was actually a good thing. So I had one less child to worry about at home at the time. He, was, he wasn't in treatment at the time of his relapse and overdose. Is that right? 
uh, yeah, he had just gotten out of treatment. Um, so he left the treatment in January 1st and he died February 17th. So yeah, he was out of treatment for about six, six weeks, but he worked in the treatment facility. That was one reason why I felt comfortable with him leaving it because I figured he worked in a sober community all day long. But, um, you know, once the drugs, uh, you know, once the brain has been on drugs for a while, I, I always say the brain never forgets how the drugs once made it feel. And I think it taunts some people more than others. And I think with Eric, it was a really a taunting force, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. I, I heard a lead recently or somebody share their story at an open meeting. And a man had said he had been sober for 26 years. And he was preparing to retire in about I think seven or eight years. And he said the thought kept coming back to him. I can just pick up and start using again once I retire because I won't have the hassle of work again. And he would think, oh my goodness, where's this coming from? And it was, you you know, it comes in your own voice and it's that taunting and that wanting and longing that just comes back out of nowhere. And if you're going through a particularly weak or stressful time, it's overpowering. Mm -hmm. I have, I have a friend and uh, she, when Eric first started, um, the first time she was in, he was in treatment. I saw her and she has been sober for 25 years at the time. And I said to her, how long does it take before it gets easier? And she says, I have to remind myself every day when I wake up not to have a drink. So for some people, it's just, I think, overpowering. Yeah, And I think sometimes that can pertain to how sensitive you are. Yeah. So I just, it varies. It's different for different people. And there's really no one size fits all or one way to put your finger on it for anyone. And I think that's what drives those who are in the sidelines of family members, it makes us so frantic because we want to figure out how to fix this and solve it and get control. And there really just is no way to figure it out. No. And and like you said, everybody is different. And I, and I think people that have um, like depression or bipolar disorder, I just think it's that much harder for them because the drugs are like medicine for them. Um, The drugs made Eric feel uh, good. uh, And the drugs that the doctor had been prescribing to him didn't have that same effect. So, um, you know, I'm not, so it was unfortunate, you know, because they made him feel like the drugs that the doctor prescribed couldn't. So they took away his pain. Unfortunately, they, they caused another pain, a different type of pain, but they took away that internal pain until the addiction took hold anyway. Then life, you know, becomes a living hell for everybody. For everyone. I've heard yeah. it said that there are no bad chemicals, just bad reactions to where, you know, I could have a glass of wine and be done with it for six months, not think about it again, but somebody else might have a glass of wine and they're gone for three months. Or my son's issue was with prescription opiates. He was prescribed Percocets. Those tend to make a lot of people feel nauseous and itchy and uncomfortable. But for him, they made him, they kind of set him and made him feel right. So it really just depends on the person. And there's a, there's a chemical and a neurological aspect to it. Not to mention if there's any type of psychological or emotional, all the bio, socio, psycho elements that are involved. There's just so many elements that we're now coming to understand. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I know people that drink every night and I would not say they're alcoholics by any means. They're very functional people. They don't need to have a drink. They enjoy having a drink. But then somebody like Eric, once he starts drinking, he can't stop. So there's like a switch that goes off in the brain for some people. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, they they become addicted because uh, I, I don't know why that happens. It's got to be genetics, I'm sure, or genetics is part of it. But, um, you know, like I said, some people can drink every night, no problems. Other people, like my son, 
it's just not possible. So I, you know, and it's not an issue of intelligence or weakness. I kind of relate it to a lot of people have a peanut allergy and I love peanut butter. I could eat peanut butter all day long, but there are some people that can't even be in the same building with peanuts because it'll kill them. It really, it really just boils down to your chemistry. It does. It does. And, and they know that it changes, you know, the brain chemistry. Uh, addict, you know, people become addicted, their brain chemistry changes. So it's just something physiological that happens to some people, but not to other people. I mean, Eric had a you know, lot hung out with other kids that drank and, um, you know, did drugs and um, they didn't get addicted, most of them. So, or a lot of them. I mean, only one did actually. They didn't become addicted. So what was different about him than them? Right. So you just don't know. You really don't know. Um, you know, I know what, I know how tough it is personally to open up and share your story and how long did it take until you were comfortable to start talking about it and opening up and how did you overcome sort of the beginning stages of the fear of that? I know what it's like to, to speak out publicly. I know what it's like to even kind of let your guard down and tell your friends what's going on. There's a threshold we have to cross. I think once we get past that threshold, we don't care anymore what people think, but we're still in an age of stigma and that fear is very real. So I'm just wondering how you overcame that and what those early days were like. I think when Eric, in the very beginning, I didn't talk to very many people about it, especially when, when it was just his behavior. And then when he became addicted, it, it took us a while. Uh, it took me a while before I finally started opening up to people because after a while you just have to, your life is so out of control yeah. and you need to talk to somebody. And I know in the beginning, Eric was angry that I told people, but I'm like, Eric, I, I can't do this anymore on my own. Like I need to talk to people. It makes me feel good. But um, I was really lucky because I had a family. I, had, I have an extended family and I had a lot of friends and no one judged me negatively. People were very understanding if anything, you know, they were, they were just extremely helpful. They listened to me. So I didn't really have a problem once I started talking about it. And then after he died, um, I was willing to talk about it because I, I guess, uh, because I just feel so strongly that things have to change. Um, my son needed long-term treatment early on in his, uh, quest to become well. And I couldn't get that for him. Actually, I couldn't even get him into a detox because they told me he, his addiction or his yeah, addiction wasn't bad enough. He wasn't addicted enough. So um, what, did that, what does that mean? What, how, did they, no how did they just make that decision? Uh, that was at the emergency room. They said that the um, insurance company would not probably admit him because he, his drug habit wasn't bad enough. Wow. I guess he, when he was telling him how much he took of what, I guess he didn't take enough. I don't know. But it didn't make any sense to me. To me, you're either addicted or you're not addicted. Yeah. So I, I came home with a child that it was in need of help. And I was supposed to, I didn't know what I was doing, you know. But, um, and I think I'm a little angry about that. And I feel like things need to change. Um, somebody that is trying to, that really wants to get over, um, you know, addiction needs help. 30 days is not enough. 30 days is just the start of letting their brain clear. Okay. They need more than 30 days. They really do. And, um, we just sort of put these people through, uh, this, um, revolving door. You know, they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. And then next time around, they don't even want to give you 30 days. They want to only give you 10 days and it's not right. And I, and I guess I just feel really strongly that, um, maybe if my son had gotten the right care or the right level of care early on, maybe we would have a different ending to this story. 
So um, I think that's why I'm willing to speak out. And things don't change unless people talk about things. So um, I'm willing to do some talking. And I'm hoping that if my book gets published, that maybe it starts the conversation because things have to change. Everybody, you know, there's a stigma around addiction. Uh, the treatment, I was, we were told when we went to the parent weekend, uh, when he was in his first rehab, that there's a 90% failure rate for people that are addicted to opiates after 30 days. So they sent him home knowing that he would fail. Yeah. So why would you do that? Why wouldn't you keep him there? So he had a better chance of recovery. So yeah. I think it's, there's a little bit of um, not so much anger, but just frustration in the fact that we didn't get what we needed. No. And there's an outrage to that because it yeah. is so clearly mishandled and we still have so far to go. Yeah. But no one wants to talk about it because there is that stigma. You know, you're ashamed when somebody, you know, uh, in your family is addicted to drugs or alcohol. But you know what? Um, it's a disease. They know it changes the brain. And they know it's also curable if, if it's people are given the right treatment. So, I think um, the epidemic is so overwhelming at this point now that more people are forced to talk about it because it's really touching every family. I don't know a fam I don't know anyone that doesn't know someone. And they're good people that are I was just saying last night at a meeting, the people that I I love addicts. I love a lot of people that have been addicted. That's been a part of my life. I love them. And the people that I love that have been addicted, they are handy people. They are talented and funny and sensitive and the ones you want to be around. They are good people. That's why we fight for them. There's also the weird element. I've never really understood why we do feel so much shame and embarrassment and stay hidden. My misery, like you said, it forces you, your life becomes so out of control. It forced me to become proactive quick. But in the early phases, I did isolate. And it's almost as though the person addicted is a little more brazen and less ashamed than the family because I don't know if it's an issue of blame and fault or what the problem is. But there is this sickness of silence that we adhere to at first. Uh, yeah, and I think it's because it's always been seen as a moral failing. So the person that's addicted feels like they're a failure because they've made this choice, but I don't, they may have chosen to use drugs or drink alcohol, but I don't think they chose to get addicted. And I think, you know, that, that, that goes on to the family as well. It was always seen as a moral failing, but we now know that it's not the brain chemistry changes. So people that do want to stop using drugs, they can't do that so easily. They need help. It's not something they can just stop doing. Okay. So, um, we need to stop being ashamed and we need to start, we need to start, um, you know, standing up for ourselves and so that people can get the treatment that they, they need. Uh, when we started the walk that you mentioned earlier when you introduced me, uh, the first year, it hurt in 25 people. This year, this is our fourth walk, and we had all, all close to 600 people. Wow. So it's growing, and the people that come there are just, I think, really happy to be in a place where there are other people that have gone through the same struggle with them, where they don't have to feel ashamed where they can talk about their experiences. And it's just be, I think it's a, a healing for a lot of people. I think so as well. And I, I think we started a little meeting here in my local small town and it's growing every week to where we run out of chairs now. And I think people are just so desperate for hope and support and a safe place to say, this is what's going on. So I think we are seeing progress and you know, the, the overwhelming amount of the problem is driving that. Yeah, I think so. And, and just going back to your point as to uh, the you said earlier that the addiction epidemic is, is um, I mean, it's being talked about now. It's becoming a real issue that everybody's talking about it. Well, 
I have to wonder if some of the reason why it's such an epidemic is because people don't get proper treatment right right away when they decide they want help. Instead, they're, like I said, put through this revolving door. You know, if my son had gone into six or nine months worth of treatment right away, you know, um, he may be okay. Where at 30 days, it's not enough. So maybe that's part of the reason why the addiction or the opiate epidemic is as bad as it is. Because we're not treating people the way they need to be treated. We're not giving them are 14 days. Uh, if, yeah, Eric got 30 days the first time. The second time, they wanted to give him only 10. Wow. Well, if it didn't work in 30 days, how would 10 days work? And before he went to the 30 days, they had, he had to go to eight months, eight, eight weeks of outpatient treatment. And, and that was a waste. That should be the follow-up to right. long-term treatment. That should not be the, the starting, the, the, the uh, first step. You know, if, you, if there was any other illness in which there was a treatment that didn't work or a medication that didn't work, they decided that didn't work, they'd stop using it. And with addiction, they need to stop using the outpatient treatment model and the 30-day treatment model because for most people, it doesn't work. No, for most people, I, it I don't think work. it does. What? For most people, it does not work, mm-hmm. which brings me to another question I have. When I read your book, and it's so, so good, I, I, really want, I really think anybody could benefit from reading it. I felt like I was going through your family's experiences with you and the rises and fall of hope. And there were times that you were afraid of him and he was violent and threatening. And, and you know, to know somebody's coming home in a matter of days and you're going to deal with this again, how did you deal with those scenarios of chaos and fear? Um, I don't know. The first time he came home, we had gone down to see him. He was in Texas and we went down to see him and there was such a change in him just after two weeks. I guess I was really hopeful. I was scared. I was afraid because I thought, okay, now he's back to the same environment. I was a little nervous. Um, I didn't really want him to come home. I wanted him to go to a halfway house, but him, he didn't want to go and neither, and his, um, counselor didn't think he had to go because he made such progress, but I was nervous. Um, I really wasn't afraid of him at that point. You know, like he, we had sort of gotten, you know, I felt like he was better that way, at least, you know, after seeing him, you know, at the rehab in Texas. But um, yeah, it's, it's very unsettling because you don't know what to expect. You really don't. And um, your life, it's just a big roller coaster. You go up and down, up and down. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I guess I just wanted to hope for the best. And that's all you can do at sometimes because you can't, can't control it. (laughs) I couldn't live life for him. I had to just try to guide him and love him. But I, I, you know, it was hard. I mean, I just have help in the process. Did you have, what was your support system or who you turned to in those moments of turmoil and, you know, despair? Uh, well, my son was really good. I talked to him, Uh, my sisters, my neighbors, they were really good friends. I had a lot of friends that were very willing to listen and they were non-judgmental, which was really great. But, um, I didn't, I didn't really start to see a therapist until after he died. Um, so I just, uh, had a lot of good friends and family. But, um, have, did your relationships change during the process of what you went through with him? And then after he passed relationships with my uh, family and friends? Yes. Um, Actually, you know, I was really lucky. I had a very supportive, we have a great neighborhood and some close friends and they were great uh, before and after. Like I said earlier, they really weren't very judgmental. They weren't judgmental about it at all. Um, 
you know, some people had people in their family that had these types of issues. So they were very understanding and they knew what I was going through. Um, in terms of after his death, you know, that continued. Uh, the biggest, I think, relationship change was with my daughter. Um, like I said earlier, he, she wasn't around when he went through, when he was going through his worst of times. But um, after he died, I think she was a little upset. She didn't understand what happened and why. And I think she sort of blamed me maybe to a degree. But then um, years later, she's starting to slowly understand it. And she actually read my book um, about six months ago. And she's now really encouraging me to, to move forward with okay. it. So, um, yeah. Well, yeah, because he passed in 2012. So that was even earlier in the epidemic when, you know, these things yeah. were not as open as they are now. No, no, it wasn't really. Now it's being talked about, which is great. It, it needs to be talked about. But uh, yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was before people started talking about it more in 2012. Yeah. So, you know, with a lot of families that are, I know a lot, I just went to a, stopped into a memorial service for a young woman who had a fentanyl overdose last week, just a few days ago, with so many families going through this loss. And, you know, it is the fear we all have when we're sitting in the rooms and when we're chasing our kids down. And having gone through it, what thoughts, what would you share with someone who is also struggling with the loss of a child? How do they, how do you get through it and get through the day where you can start to feel somewhat at peace again? Uh, it's been six and a half years. And I think on his sixth anniversary, I, I have to say that I felt, I started feeling a little better. Okay. But I don't think you ever, ever stop feeling the pain. It's such an unnatural thing to lose a child. Um, I, you know, think of him every day and I think just about every day tears still come to my eyes when I think that he's not here. So it's um, something that you just don't get over. It's like, you know, you, you're carrying this pain around and after a while it, it gets easier to carry, but it's still there. Sort of like carrying around a heavy backpack, you know, it's really, really heavy and it's very, very awkward, but eventually maybe you position it in a way that you can carry it a little easier, but it's still, you can, you still know it's there. It still pains you. It's the same thing. I mean, it never goes away. Uh, he's with me every day and the pain is with me every day. So, um, I, I don't know what else to say. It's just really difficult, but you just take one day at a time and, um, you just, um, I don't know. It's just hard. Get through it. You have to lean on the people in your life that love you. I think you just. I think you would probably just go from. You kind of lean on kindnesses, and that would buoy you to the next one. And and if you know somebody that's been through it, you lean on them too. I had um, where I worked. I had two other adults, women there that had lost children, and then I had another friend who I worked with. She wasn't in the same building, but she had lost a child. So they were. Oh my gosh, they were great because they. You know, if I it was like what do I do for Christmas? How did you handle this? Or, you know, just to talk and really talk to somebody that you really know, knew, understood what you were going through. It was really helpful. So I was, I was lucky in a lot of ways. It really was, but um, it's something that doesn't go away. It's never going to go away. And I, don't, I don't expect it to. It's not. Yeah. I have a friend who's a grief blogger. She lost her husband, her best friend is her daughter all within the same year. And she, um, 
went and hiked the Appalachian Trail right after by herself. And she said, I wouldn't recommend it to just anybody, but I was insane. I was so filled with grief and despair was insane. And so she blogs about it now and talks about kind of putting the pieces back together and that they're different, but you can start to, you know, breathe in public again. And she had posted something the other day that said, how long has it been? Seems like yesterday, feels like today. And she just has such depth in her writing that she says, you know, those who have experienced this deep grief and carry that really can only understand. And it's something that those of us on this side of it really were careful not to touch or speak casually to it because it is such a terrible despair that you can't understand unless you've been through it. Yeah, you really can't. You really can't understand it. You know, people will say, oh, you know, I lost a mother or I lost my brother. It's like, it's not the same. It's just not the same. You should never have to bury your child. Your children should have, your children should be burying you. It's just, it's horrible. So, um, I don't, you know, just uh, one day at a time. That's all. And I mean, it gets easier, but it, it's never, it never leaves you. That's all. What is, as far as those who are alongside somebody who has lost a child, a friend or a neighbor, a coworker, what suggestions do you have for them that would, you know, you can't make it easier, but what could they maybe do or say or not do or say that would be helpful? Um, I think just paying attention to the person, you know, allow, uh, spending time with them, calling them, not forgetting about them. Because after the funeral, you know, there's all this activity and all of a sudden you're alone. And I had neighbors that would call me, let's go for a walk, or they would just stop in. And it was really helpful because um, you do feel very alone. All of a sudden, all the funeral, you know, the arrangements, all the the company that you had, everything is done. Um, So I think just to uh, keep in touch and to constantly reach out and not forget about the person uh, and let them talk about their loss. And it was uncomfortable for some people, but it's something that, you know, is necessary for the person going through the grief. And then um, tell them, the other thing you shouldn't tell them is that, you know, you'll get over it because you won't. <laughs> yeah. You'll never get over it. I actually, um, I, I'd gone to a funeral a while ago for someone that had lost a child to overdose as well. And when I walked in to, to speak with the mother, I said, how are you? She said, I'm fine right now because none of this is real yet. So I said, yeah. oh, gosh, when this is over and it gets quiet call me and I'll come over (laughs) or I'll just stop by because you do go through that process where there's a flurry of activity and you're just kind of in autopilot and then come the quiet days. And she talked about how it's important to remember the anniversaries and birthdays and, you know, having somebody reach out and remember those because that child matters and Mm -hmm. they still matter. They still matter to that parent. They want them to still matter. Yeah. I mean, just because they're not here anymore doesn't mean they're not still a part of your life. They still are. Um, and I know that we've, um, in the, in the beginning, you know, on the anniversary date, my sisters would come up and go to church. It's in February. So there was a few times where with the snow, they couldn't come. And then, uh, there's a tree planted in Eric's memory up in Connecticut. So in the summers we would have a picnic up there. And, um, and now that the walk has taken over because the walk is right around his birthday. So they all come to the walk in his honor, which is really nice. But, um, yeah, you have to celebrate those things. Um, on his birthday, I make his favorite food. He always liked tacos, so we always have tacos for his birthday. Um, the only day that I really allow myself, I, I feel sorry for myself, is on the day of his anniversary. I like that to be a quiet day. I stay home by myself, and I allow myself to, um, you know, be sad if I want to. <laughs> but otherwise, I have to move on because you, you just have to keep going because if you didn't, 
I think, you know, it, you would just become too depressed. I mean, I went back to work after two weeks. Oh, wow. And it was probably a week too early, but it was a good because just to stay at home and um, waddle in your grief was just too much. Then did you let yourself pull away at different times during the day and kind of melt down if you needed to? Well, I mean, I, I'm a teacher, so... Um, you know, I do have my prep periods, you know, so there, those were the periods where if I needed to, I could just close the door. But, um, I don't think I broke down too often, but it was, it wasn't easy. It really wasn't. So I went to a, there is a group that around in this area and they're national as well. It's called the Addicts Parents United. And I went to the survivors of loss event that they had. And one of the parents got up and was saying how one of the things that she did or encouraged other families to do was go for some goals that that child had, whether it was a degree they wanted to pursue or a vacation or a mountain they wanted to climb, you know, as hard as that is and as bitter as it might seem, sometimes they would go for those goals and it would bring honor to their memory and their plans and keep all of that alive. I loved that idea. Yeah, that is a great idea. That is something I had never thought about. Although Eric always wanted to write a book about his struggle. So I think that's one reason why I continued writing the book. Uh, because uh, he wanted to tell people about his struggle, as he called it. And um, I finished the book really in his honor because I wanted to be able to give him the voice that he always wanted to have. So I guess in a way I did sort of finish one of his goals. I love that. Yeah. And in your book, you hear his voice because it's some of his writings. Yes. At the end, I put in his writings. Um, and I think that makes, yeah, it makes you, um, makes the reader um, understand that, you know, a lot of what I wrote was, was really from him. It wasn't something that I made up. It, it really sort of, um, confirms some of the things that, you know, are in the story. Yeah. I, lo I love that part. I read that part pretty slowly just to kind of get to know him. And I knew how, as a mother, how moving and important that was. So I, like I said, I can't encourage people enough to read your book once it comes out. That would be great. I hope it comes out. <laughs> I'm still shopping around for yeah. it. And, uh, well, we'll help with that. In, in a uh, publishing company, so we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Well, I want to um, share something with you that I've kind of kept on hand for, for when there has been loss, and it's just something that I love about. I love applying meaning to things. Um, about 10 years ago, I went to a funeral for a, a man who had died unexpectedly, and he was pretty young, and he left little kids behind, and it was a really tragic, sorrowful setting. And the pastor that had got up and given his eulogy gave the meaning of the word departure as it applied to death and passing, and it was a Greek term that was historical. It had three meanings, and this is what they applied to when somebody would die. They would mention these meanings. The first meaning of the word departure is in a military sense. And in those historical days, it was regarding soldiers who were camped out. They would pick up and move in order to invade and possess an enemy camp or move forward to a new camp. And this was called an order for departure. And they never knew when that order to depart would come. The second meaning is a sailing term. The word departure refers to a ship that is docked at shore and tied with ropes. The sailors would untie the ropes and send the ship off toward its next destination. And that was considered the ship's exciting departure because it was being set free to sail to its next journey. And the third meaning, which is my favorite for the word departure, is when a prisoner sets down his chains and becomes free to head home. So I 
I love to apply that to somebody who has been taken before what appears to us to be their time. And, you know, it's going to be over for all of us eventually. We only have right now and we only have what time we have with each other. So I just, I think finding meaning and purpose, having hope for the days that we have left with our kids, and then that hope becomes honor if they're lost. And really, that's really all we have. Yeah. No, I um, I really do feel that Eric is in a better place. I really feel um, that he's in heaven. He's, his uh, past sins or whatever have been forgiven, and he is in heaven. He's in a better place. He has sent me many signs since he died. And um, so, yeah, he's the third meeting of departure uh, would apply to him. I um, It's sad for me, but um, I know that he's in a better place. I always say that, you know, I, I, I truly believe he's in heaven, um, but it doesn't take away the pain, but I truly believe he's, he's okay. And I believe um, that too. And we have to believe that I personally believe the the hope that we're there longer than we're here. And that day is going to come that we'll see those faces again. And that's what you hold on to. And in the meantime, you, you honor them. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I'm hoping, you know, what I've been doing, you know, advocating is, you know, I hope I'm, I think he's happy with me. <laughs> um, there's a candle that goes on my counter once in a while. And when he first died, it would just go on all the time. It's a, uh, an electric, uh, battery powered candle. And last year after the walk, I said, you know, Eric, it would be really nice if you would let me know if you're happy with what I'm doing. And the candle went on after the walk. Oh, wow. So he sends me signs or he has a lot more more in the past. I mean, recently things like that haven't been happening, but he has sent me many signs and, um, he's, he's okay. Uh, you know, I'm the one that's not okay now, but he's okay. So I hold on to that because he, he really struggled in life. Life was very difficult for him. I don't know why, um, he was so talented, but for him it was difficult and, um, he's no longer suffering. He's no longer struggling. He's no longer in pain. So I have to, keep that in my mind when I'm missing him because he's, you know, he's in a better place. Right. So he's set down the chains to head home. That's, right, exactly. that's the hope I believe we hold on to. Yeah. But I cannot thank you enough for being courageous enough to write your book and share your story, um, to share your grief and to use it. I think that is a perfect example of beauty for ashes. And again, I would encourage everyone to read it when it's out. I will definitely advertise it and send it out with this podcast. And other than that, I don't know if you have any final thoughts or not, but I cannot thank you enough. Uh, No, I just want to thank you for um, reading my book, taking the time and endorsing it and uh, allowing me to speak um, with you on your podcast. So um, hopefully you know, if we keep speaking, people keep speaking up, we can uh, make some change because things need to change. People um, shouldn't be dying. We should be able to help these people and people, um, we, need to, we need to make change. And without, we need to start talking about things so the change can happen. That's all. So hopefully people will join us in speaking up. It's brave that will make progress. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thanks so much. And until next time, bye-bye. Thank you. You have been listening to Addiction Nonfiction. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. You may contact host Annie at annieunhooked at gmail.com. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to Addiction Nonfiction. Addiction Nonfiction.